Good morning. It's good to see everybody present this morning. I'm thankful to be given the opportunity to stand before you this morning and to present a lesson from God's Word. The topic I've chosen this morning is the church that Christ built. The main focus of the lesson will be how can we know or how can we determine which of the many churches that are in existence in the world today is the one true church that Christ said he would build. I suppose it could be said that the topic for this lesson could be considered somewhat controversial, but it is not my intent to offend anyone, simply to declare the truth of what God's word teaches concerning the church that Christ built, not to add anything to that or take anything away from it. As the, we heard in the reading this morning, Jesus said, I will build my church. That should be very easy to be understood by every person who reads the Bible. But given all the many different churches that exist in the world today, it is very evident that that is not understood by everyone. Some people don't realize exactly what the church is. The church is not a building. The church is made up of each individual Christian who obeys the gospel. In verse 19, when uh, Jesus told Peter, Whatsoever things you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever things you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He was not saying to Peter, you go out, you make up whatever rules and regulations you want to make up, and that's the way things will be. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. This is done through the Holy Ghost. In John 16.13, Jesus told the disciples how be it when the spirit of truth is come he will guide you into all truths so the things that we read in God's word concerning the church that Christ built they come directly from God we have no choice but to obey them we cannot sugarcoat God's word we must obey it exactly as he has instructed us to do and this is concerning the church my granddaughter looked this up for me on the computer. There are some 29 major Christian religions in existence in the world today, and these are called Christian religions because their teachings center around God and Christ. Each one of these base groups have hundreds of groups who've splintered off from the main group for one reason or other and went off and started a church based similar on the teachings of the base group, yet their teachings are different. This doesn't include the non-Christian churches, such as Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Brahmanism, and many other such-like religions that are non-Christian religions because their teachings have nothing whatsoever to do with God or Christ. There even exists 
a church whose sole purpose is to worship Satan. With so many different religious ideals that are popular in the world today, how can we know or how can we determine which is the one true church that Christ said he would build? The only one true sure way to know which church Christ built is to study God's word. We cannot determine the church that Christ built if we don't know what the Bible teaches concerning the church that Christ built. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. John tells us in 1 John 4 verse 1 that we are to try the spirits, not to believe every spirit, but to try the spirits to see whether the things are of God. We must know what God's word teaches us. We must accept what God's word teaches us. We must reject those teachings that are not from God's word. When John says, try the spirits, that's simply the teachings that are being taught. We must know what God's word teaches us to be able to know whether the things that are being taught to us are indeed of God. When we do study God's word concerning the church, we'll see that there are some certain characteristics that the church that Christ built possess that the other churches do not possess. The first of these characteristics is that the church that Christ built would begin at Jerusalem. Isaiah gave us this prophecy in Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. And many shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We see clearly that the church that Christ built would have its beginning at Jerusalem. After Jesus has risen from the grave, in Luke chapter 24, verses 46 and 47, he said to the eleven remaining disciples, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 2, we see that the church that Christ built did have its beginning at Jerusalem. It began in 33 AD on the day of Pentecost that Jesus was the builder or the founder of that church. The foundation that the church is built upon is when Jesus said upon this confession, I will build my church 
The foundation is the confession that Jesus truly is the Christ, truly is the Son of God, that he came to this world and gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins. I believe that it would be fair to look at this time at a few of the more popular denominations that exist in the world today to see where they had their beginning and who was the builder. I got this information from the publication that I receive every month called Seek the Old Paths. The Roman Catholic Church began in Rome in 606 A.D. Boniface III, who later became the first pope, was the builder, the founder. The Lutheran Church began in Germany in 1520 A.D. Martin Luther was the founder. The Presbyterian Church began in Switzerland in 1536 A.D. John Calvin was the founder. The Baptist Church began in Holland in 1607 A.D. John Smythe was the founder. The Methodist Church began in England in 1739 A.D. John Wesley was the founder. Jehovah's Witness Church began in America in 1872 A.D. Charles T. Russell was the founder. As we can clearly see, none of these churches had their beginning at Jerusalem. Amen. None of these churches were built by Jesus. None of these church churches were started by Jesus. They were all started by men. Not only these that I mentioned, but all other churches that exist in the world today have their start by men. We see that the Lord's Church was started in the right place by the right founder. The second characteristic that I'd like for us to look at, the church that was built by Christ should wear Christ's name. It seems that there is as many different names for churches as there are different churches that exist in the world today. When we talk to people, especially those of the denominational beliefs, we often hear things like, the name doesn't make any difference. The name is not what's going to take you to heaven. As long as we believe in Jesus, believe the Bible, we're all going to go to heaven. We're all going to have the same result. The name does not make any difference. If that's true, think about this. You go into the hospital for a medical procedure. If the name doesn't make any difference, it doesn't matter what name they put on that identification bracelet. The result should be the same, shouldn't it? Or will it? What does God's word teach us concerning what the church is to be called? We see through the scriptures that there are several different references to the church. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, the church was called the church of God. For Jesus is God. Jesus is part of the Godhead. 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The church was called the body of Christ, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, Ephesians 4, verse 12. The church was called the church of the firstborn, Hebrews 12, 23, for Jesus was the firstborn of the dead. The church was called the church, Acts 2, 47, Acts 5, 11. The church was called the churches of Christ, Romans 16, 16. And Paul was not here teaching when he said churches, that there are different churches. When he says churches of Christ, he is simply referring to each different congregation of the church collectively, just as each individual member makes up a particular congregation. Each individual congregation makes up the church that Christ built. This should not be hard to understand. God's word is plain and precise. Paul had to deal with something similar to this at the church at Corinth. It seems that some of them were saying, I am of a Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. But Paul pointed out to them that Christ is not divided. That Christ was the one who died for them, not Paul, not Apollos, not Cephas. They should be called Christians since Christ was the one who sacrificed himself for them. The Bible teaches us that Christ died for the church. Ephesians 5.25 Christ so loved the church that he gave himself for it. The Bible teaches us that Christ purchased the church with his own blood. Acts 20.28 20, It would seem that it would be Easy to understand that since the church belongs to Christ, as he said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. The pronoun my denotes ownership. That he gave himself as a sacrifice for the church to purchase it with his own blood. That it would be simple and easy to understand that the church should be called by the name of the one who purchased it with his own blood. Amen. Should it not bear the name of Christ? Many of the church names that exist in the world today make no reference whatsoever to God or Jesus. Some do, but many do not. The third characteristic that I'd like for us to look at, Christ is to be the only authority over the church. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 1 verse 23-2 that Jesus is the head of the church and hath put all things under his feet and given him to be head over all things to the church. Every, the Bible teaches us that everything that is done by the church everything that is taught by the church, the way that the services are conducted are to be done in the name of Christ. The phrase in the name of simply means by the authority of. Paul wrote in Colossians 3.17, And whatsoever ye do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, 
giving thanks to God and the Father by him. We do not have any authority to change any part of the works that the church do, to change any part of the teaching that the church is involved in. That We do not have the authority to change any part of the worship services. Everything must be done by the authority of Christ or in Christ's name. In fact, not only when we're involved with the work of the church or when we're attending the services of the church, but in every aspect of our daily walk of lives, everything that we say or do is to be done in the name of Christ. Everything that we say or do, we are to have the authority of Christ. The Bible also teaches us that all power has been given to Jesus. Matthew 28, 18, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. The Bible teaches us that this power was given to Christ by God himself. John 3.35, The Father loveth the Son, and have given all things into his hand. Matthew 11.27, Jesus, all things are delivered unto me of my Father. Jesus is to be the only authority that guides the church that Christ built. The Pope does not have authority. Many Catholics believe that whatever the Pope says is law. If what the Pope says conflicts with what God's Word teaches, they must accept what the Pope says. Not religious councils, not even the elders of the church. The elders are to oversee the church, absolutely. The Bible makes this very clear, very plain. But they are to do so with the knowledge that Jesus is over them. They oversee and guide the church under the authority of Christ. The Bible teaches us that Jesus will have this authority over the church until the end of time. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. The kingdom is the church. The fourth characteristic that is possessed by the church that Christ built. The church must teach the gospel plan of salvation exactly as it is laid out in the Bible. Salvation simply means to be saved. There are many different ideas in different denominational churches that exist on how one is to be saved. Some teach that belief is all you need. As long as you believe that Jesus was God's son, you will be saved. Some teach that we're saved through some miraculous miraculous occurrence in our lives much like the one that Paul experienced on the road to Damascus but the Bible clearly teaches us that Paul was not saved during that miraculous occurrence Acts twenty-two sixteen. after Ananias was sent to Paul 
Jesus had told him to go on to the city and it would be told him what he must do. Acts twenty two sixteen, Ananias said to Paul, And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. It is very evident that Paul was not saved by a miraculous experience. Paul was saved just like everybody today must be saved. Some of the churches teach that baptism is not necessary at all in order for one to be saved. Some teach that we are baptized because we have already been saved. But when we study God's word, we can clearly see that none of these things are of God. They are false doctrine. God gives us easy, specific steps that must be completed if we are to be saved. These steps are clear and precise. They're very easy to comply with. Each one must be taken in order. For example, we cannot believe before we hear. God's plan of salvation is this. We must hear the word of God, Romans 10, 17. We must believe what that word teaches us. John 8, 24, Mark 16, 15, and 16. We must truly repent of our sins. And to truly repent doesn't just mean that we're sorry for what we've done, but that we make a complete change in our life. We stop doing those things that are against the will of God, and we strive to do those things that he teaches us that we should do in his word. This is Luke 13, verses 3 and verse 5. Acts 2.38 Then we must publicly confess our belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Acts 8.37 Romans 10.9-10 Then we must be baptized for the remission of sins. And for the remission of sins means to have our sins washed away by the blood of Christ which we come into contact through the burial of baptism with Christ. Romans chapter 6, about the first 11, 13 verses, teaches us that we are buried with Christ in baptism into his death, that we are raised to walk in newness of life, leaving the old man of sin dead and buried. Mark 16, 15 and 16 teaches that we must be baptized. Acts 2, 38. Acts 22, 16, which we saw a moment ago, we still have our sins until we are baptized. After we have completed these five steps as God has instructed us in his word, we are then in a saved condition. The Bible teaches us that we then must live faithfully unto death, Revelation 2.10. That just means that we do everything in our power to keep ourselves in a saved condition. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Be thou therefore steadfast, unmovable. 2 Peter 1, 10, But the rather brethren give all diligence to make your calling and election sure. Jude, verse 3, That we are to earnestly strive for the faith. 
And you notice that Revelation 2.10 doesn't say until death, it says unto death. That means that if living faithfully to God should bring about our death or cause our death, we are still to live faithfully to God. Jesus has all authority over the church as we've already seen. Everything is to be done in his name. We do not have the right, no person has the right, not the Pope, not anybody, to change in any way to add to or to take away from God's plan of salvation. The fifth characteristic that the church that Jesus built should possess is that the church will worship God in spirit and in truth. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9, Jesus spoke these words. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. It would seem that those words that Jesus spoke in Matthew 15 verse 9 could be used exactly to describe many of the worship services that take place in these denominational churches today. They teach things that God's word does not teach. They add things such as instrumental music, other things that is not authorized by Jesus. They leave out things that God's word teaches must be present. They do not observe the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. They do not give every first day of the week. I didn't know that the church existed before I started dating my wife 35 years ago. Most My parents have been to several different denominational churches. Most of them, whenever the doors are open, they pass the plate. This type of worship may outwardly appear to be genuine and sincere and worthwhile, but Jesus said it was vain. Vain means empty, useless, of no value. While teaching the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, Jesus told her in verses 23 and 24, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The word must means we do not have a choice in the matter. It's not optional. It has to be done exactly the way it was instructed for it to be done. God will not accept 
any worship that is not in spirit and in truth. To worship God in spirit means that we're to have the right frame of mind. In spirit, according to Webster's New World Dictionary, there are several, several listings of what it means to be in spirit. One of them is frame of mind. We must have the proper frame of mind when we worship God. We put the things of the world out of our minds. We're not to be thinking about what we're going to do after the services are over or anything else. We must have our minds centered on God, on the sacrifice that was made for us by God and Jesus on our behalf. And we especially should have our minds centered on Christ when we observe the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 29, Paul gives us this warning. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. It doesn't matter what part of the worship service we're in, whether we're singing, praying, reading the scripture, studying the word of God, or listening to a lesson that's being taught by God's word. We must have the proper frame of mind for our worship to be in spirit. To worship in truth means, simply means that we do only those things that have been authorized and commanded by God. We do not add anything to the worship. We do not leave out anything from the worship. Some add instrumental music to their song service. This is not authorized by God. 1 Corinthians 14, 15 teaches us that we are to sing with the spirit and with the understanding. Ephesians 5.19 teaches us that we are to sing and make melody in our hearts to the Lord. Our hearts are not in a musical instrument. We are to teach and admonish one another with our singing. Colossians 3.16 To worship in truth means that we do not leave out any part of the worship that God has taught us must be present. The gospel is to be preached during the worship service. Romans 10, 14 and 15, Acts 20, verse 7. We are to pray to God, Acts, 2, Acts 12, verse 5, 1 Corinthians 14, 15. We are to observe the supper every first day of the week, Acts 20, verse 7. We are to give of our means every first day of the week, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. And the things are to be done decently and in order, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40. I believe it would be an accurate statement to say that the Lord's church, the true church of Christ, possess all these characteristics. And I say the true church of Christ because it would be hypocritical of me 
to bring this lesson to a close without bringing out this point. There are congregations of the Lord's church that have strayed away from the truth of what God's word teaches. They have embraced false doctrine. There are congregations that have allowed instrumental music to come into the worship service. There are congregations, especially up north, where they allow women to lead prayer. They allow women to lead singing. They allow women to wait on the Lord's table. This is in clear violation of what God's word teaches us. Though they may bear the name of Christ, they may call themselves the church of Christ. In reality, they have fallen from grace and they are no longer the church that Christ built. Amen. How do we become a part of the church that Christ built? We find the answer to this question in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, when it tells us, And the Lord added daily to the church such as should be saved. There may be those here this morning who have not been added to the Lord's church through obedience to the gospel. If not, why not do so this morning? God's plan of salvation is clear and precise. We must hear his word. We must believe that word. We must repent of our sins. We must confess Jesus as the Son of God and be baptized for the remission of our sins. And then we put forth all effort to live faithfully unto God. Maybe there may be those here who have been added to the Lord's church but have failed in some way or another to seek to stay faithful to God. If we can assist you in either one of these ways, we would be very glad to help you. The elders would be willing to pray for you and with you. If you need to respond to the gospel of Christ, please do so as we stand and sing.